0: In recent months, those of you that have been following in some of our Bible studies, you may have picked this up, but I have really fallen in love with the book of Genesis this year. I just keep reading it and reading it and reading it, and every time I read it, I see more and I see more and I see more. And back in January, when Pastor Tom and I were down in Dominican Republic, literally one whole morning, it must have been three or four hours, we just talked about the first few chapters of Genesis and man it was such a blessing i wish we had tape recorded it there were things just revelation coming out in in our conversation that was even surprising us as we were speaking and i want to take you back to the beginning again today and we did a study not too long ago about foundations that are found in the opening chapters of Genesis, and believe you me, every one of them is under siege and under attack in our day. The foundation of God, our creator, in the beginning God made the heavens and the earth. Man, that thing is under attack. In the world today. The foundation of marriage between a man and a woman. God made male and female in his own image. Made he them. Is that under attack or what? And on and on we could go. But I want to look at Genesis in a different way today. I've never done this before. And I got blessed just studying the Bible like this. Theologians talk about something called the law of first mention. And it's basically looking at words and concepts where they first appear in the Bible. Because remember, the Bible wasn't written by man. The Bible was written by God. And he put it in a certain order for a reason. And so when a word or a concept or a truth is first introduced to us in the Bible, it's important. And you need to study the context, you need to look at it, the meaning, and then see how that truth is developed from that point onwards. And we're going to look at seven words or concepts, very briefly today, all of which are first introduced to us in the book of Genesis. And some people have compared the book of Genesis to a seed plot. It basically has the seeds of every truth in the Bible. And I want to look at it this morning specifically as seeds of the good news of the gospel. You can find the whole gospel in the book of Genesis. And I have often taught in discipleship or ministers' training classes that the Old Testament... Some people say, I don't want to read that Old Testament. That's all law and stuff and just forget about that. Let me just get into the New Testament. That's a little bit silly and a little bit naive. Because really, the Old Testament contains the entire New Testament concealed. And the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. So you need to read the whole thing from Genesis to Revelation to really get... The full understanding of what God is trying to say to us. Alright? Now, in the book of Genesis, which I think we all understand, is the book of beginnings. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. And the Hebrews, they named this first book after that word, beginning. Bereshit is the word. It just means beginnings and we call it Genesis, but sometimes that word beginnings gives us a little bit more of an insight. This is really the book of the beginnings of everything. It's the beginning of creation, the beginning of man, and it's the beginning of sin. It's the beginning of the devil. It's the beginning of redemption. It's the beginning of the whole plan of God for your life And for my life and I'm convinced that there's much more that we need to mine out of these chapters in Genesis and please don't think this is just some old rusty history book that we don't really need to read or understand this will come alive when you read it and allow the Holy Spirit to minister to you so I want to look at seven concepts seven truths that are first introduced to us in the book of Genesis, and each one of these forms the very basis for the entire gospel of Jesus Christ. Are you ready? Okay. Genesis chapter 6 is the first time in the Bible that the word grace or favor is introduced to us. And remember I said these things don't just accidentally appear. They appear when they do, where they do, for a reason. And when you look at the whole context, there's a bigger message that God is trying to speak to us. And Genesis 6, of course, takes place during the life of Noah. And I want to begin reading in Genesis 6 from verse 5... To verse 8 and that's going to give us a little bit of the context in which God first introduces this concept to us of grace or favor I believe it'll be translated here the words are identical all right Genesis 6 beginning with verse 5 the Lord saw how wonderful man was and what beautiful peace there was throughout his creation no The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. You know I'm going to do this. What's all mean? What's every mean? Every inclination was only evil all the time. Next verse. The Lord was grieved that He had made man on the earth, and His heart was filled with pain." Now, you need to pay close attention to that. This is another whole subject that we could delve into, and a lot of these are examples of this first mention. Go back to verse 6, please. Um, This is a, a brand new concept. God experiences pain. God experiences grief disappointment, sadness, sorrow. His heart was filled with pain. And basically, remember God made us in his own image and likeness. So any emotion that we experience, it's merely a reflection of what God is. And so joy, happiness, peace, grief, pain sorrow these are all things that god experiences and so here he has made this creation and after the six days were complete he surveyed everything that he had made and he said it's very good well this wasn't the bird's fault it wasn't any of the animals fault it wasn't the sun moon or stars fault it was man that had grieved his heart. And of course, we all know about the first appearance of sin in chapter 3 of Genesis. And it only takes three chapters in the record for it to go from one simple little disobedience to the whole earth is now evil and corrupt. And we read further in Genesis 6 about the violence, corruption, corruption, wickedness and evil and just a side note jesus said the last days in which we are living will be like the days of noah okay so this isn't just old or ancient history god is showing us something even in this account of what happened in noah's day it's being repeated in our day keep going so the lord said i will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. Let me tell you something, God gets upset. Do you all hear me? God gets upset. The Bible talks about God's anger also, talks about his wrath, and the Lord is so grieved, he is so overwhelmed with pain and disappointment in mankind that he made in his own image and likeness. He says, I'm ready to wipe them out. Next verse. But, I like that word, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. What a time to find favor. Noah did not earn favor. He didn't work for favor. He didn't somehow gain favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord through religious activities of any kind. It says He found favor. Very important that we get that concept here, because this is the first mention of grace, the first... Time that God is revealing something to us about grace. And another thing we learn, grace is often manifested in the midst of terrible darkness and gross wickedness. And when we come over to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, he seemed to be meditating on this very piece of Scripture when he says, where sin abounds, there does grace much more abound. So we can have one of two mindsets in the day in which we live. We see so much stuff happening in the world. Mass shootings. Oh, I don't even want to go into it. Terrible, terrible things. Almost daily now we hear about one of these events. We can either look at that and say, Man, look at how bad things are getting. Look at how terrible the world is. Or we can keep reminding ourselves where sin abounds, there will grace much more abound. It will superabound over and above the evil and the wickedness. So as things are getting darker and worse in the world, I believe God is whispering to you and me, Find grace. Find grace. Now, what is implied when you find something? You've been looking for it. You've been searching for it. And this is a very important concept if you want more grace in your life seek it look for it cry out to God tell God your need don't go around thinking oh I can do this in my own strength no 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 he sits on a throne of grace the bible says and we can come boldly to that throne of grace but we come in one way we come in our time of need and you've heard me talk about this before when is our time of need once a week on sunday right when we're feeling all spiritual no my time in need is continual i don't know about you And I'm not trying to sound humble or religious, I have just come to a place now after 40 years of being a Christian, I am very much aware that moment by moment I need God. I need God. I cannot make it without Him. I cannot live without God. I cannot accomplish anything of any value without God in my life. And with that knowledge it keeps me at the throne of God seeking for his grace looking for his help looking for his mercy declaring God I am bankrupt I need to find favor in your eyes Noah didn't work he found remember that grace isn't earned it's found and you find things when you're looking for them. Alright? Let's move on to the second one that's very closely related to this. Faith. The first time we read about faith in the Bible is also in the book of Genesis. And it's in Genesis 15. And of course, it's in the story of Abraham. And that's why the New Testament refers to Abraham as the father of faith. And I get blessed every time I read through the life of Abraham because God is giving us a living demonstration about faith he's the father of all who believe and if how many believers do we have if you want to be a believer the Bible says you're walking in the footsteps of your father Abraham so it would be very very wise to learn what were his footsteps What was Abraham's life like? What was his faith all about? Well, the first time it mentions Abraham believing or having faith, it's here in Genesis 15. And again, to get the context, I want to begin at verse 1 and read down to verse 16. Genesis 15 from verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield... Your very great reward. Now, to understand the context here, God had already spoken to Abraham that he was going to bless him and bless nations through him, and that he was going to be a father of many. Small problem, no kids. And so part of this discussion centers around the fact that Abraham is still childless, even though his name means father. Okay? All right, next verse. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me? Remember, God says, I'm going to be your reward. What can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. In other words, God, this thing ain't working. Uh, It's not working. Abram said, You have given me no children. I'm supposed to be a father? No children. So a servant in my household will be my heir. The word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars. How many stars are there? Huh? One septillion. That's a one with 24 zeros. I checked it with Janae. She still remembered. Count the stars if indeed you can count them. And that's how many offspring you're going to have. Next verse. Abram believed the Lord. I like that. Abram believed the Lord. And he, that's God, credited it to him as righteousness i i i got fascinated i mean i've known this verse for 40 years and i know how the apostle paul uses it to develop his whole teaching on justification by faith and we're going to look at that in a moment i knew all that but something just leaped out at me this weekend as i was pondering this all abraham's did was believed god in an impossible situation. And basically, it had to do with the fact that he couldn't have any kids. And he's, he knows, on one hand, what God called him to be, father, and he knows the reality is, I don't have any kids. And so he's torn between these two realities what God spoke and what's actually happening right now in the natural. And he chose, in spite of what he saw in the natural, to believe God. And as soon as that switch got turned on, God has some kind of an accounting system in heaven. Abraham got a credit. Righteousness was credited to his account. Now, I can't find any indication here that Abraham was looking for righteousness. He was looking for a kid. Are you all following me here? But God credited that faith to Abraham's account, and declared him righteous. Amazing. This first appearance of believing in the Bible is extremely significant. And if you follow to Romans chapter 4 for a moment, you'll notice in the book of Romans, Paul spends a number of chapters developing this theme and it sounds big and fancy and I'm gonna help you with the words he's developing the doctrine of justification by faith that's a fancy word for to make righteous to justify somebody is to say, take somebody who's not righteous and make them righteous it's to declare someone righteous And this righteousness that Paul is talking about to the Roman church has nothing to do with works. has nothing to do with brownie points or performance or how good or bad you were last week. This has everything to do with faith. Faith and faith alone. And notice how Paul refers to the very scripture we just read in Genesis 15, 6, here in Romans 4, starting with verse 1. Romans 4, verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? I like that word discovered. We need to discover things as Christians. And he discovered something, and so Paul is saying, what did Abraham discover? If, in fact, Abraham was justified By works, in other words, by his performance, by what he did, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? And here it is. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Keep going. Now, when a man works... His wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. Those of you that work, I don't think you're just doing your boss or your company a favor and doing charity work, right? My wife does sometimes, and I scold her, but you're not supposed to do that. If you show up at... 8 a.m. Monday morning in uniform, ready to work, you punch a time clock or sign a time sheet or something because they are going to be obligated to you for the time you work. Those are called wages. But he says to the man who does not work but trusts God who justifies the who? The wicked? Justifies the wicked his faith Is credited as righteousness. Hopefully all of us here today have come to a realization and an understanding of this great truth, but if you haven't, let me help you today. It doesn't matter what you've done, it doesn't matter how many bad things you have on your rap sheet, by faith and faith alone, the good news of the gospel is not only can all of that be blotted out, forgiven washed away and forgotten but he now credits to your account the righteousness of jesus christ all by one thing by faith and you know why god did it that way he said it earlier in this passage we have nothing to boast about we can't go around and saying i'm more righteous than you because i read the bible more than you and I prayed more than you, and I fast more than you, and I memorized more Bible verses than you, and we could all get proud about how righteous we are. But if my righteousness is a gift that was just credited to me because I believed in God, I only have one boast. I can boast in the Lord. I can praise God day and night because I am the righteousness of God in Christ because He gave me that gift so this is the beginning of the whole concept of faith back in genesis 15 and it ties in with this whole truth of justification by faith and one thing that i noticed as i was meditating on this this week in this first instance of believing or faith it didn't result in a healing it didn't result in a miracle It didn't result in a provision of a car or a house or a new job. It resulted in righteousness. I think that's very significant. Nothing wrong with trusting God for healing. Don't get me wrong here. Nothing wrong with praying and asking God to give you a new car or a new house or a new job. He does all of those things. But understand what the most important aspect of faith is. It's to be justified by God. To have the free gift of His righteousness credited to our life and to our account. That's the real purpose of faith. Now, notice in this next scripture how in two little sentences, Paul ties everything we've talked about here together into one sentence or one phrase in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. And you're going to notice both of these concepts intertwine. Grace and faith and what it results in. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. If you don't know these verses by memory, I would recommend memorizing them. Ready? Read it with me nice and loud. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. There it is again. God deliberately planned your salvation and mine to take place by grace through faith, not by any works of our own, so that we wouldn't be able to boast. You know what? God knows us pretty good, doesn't He? He knew what we would do. We would boast. We would brag. We would get all puffed out to hear with how righteous I am, how holy I am. Can't do that. As long as you're standing on gospel ground, you only have one boast. That's to boast in the Lord. By grace are you saved through faith. Not by works, which leads me into our third word, works. The first time works are mentioned in the Bible has nothing to do with man's works is talking about God's works. And I think that's very, very significant also. Genesis 1, starting at verse 31. And we're going to read up to Genesis 2, verse 3. This is after the six days of creation have been completed. It says, God saw all that He had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work He had been doing. So on the seventh day, He rested from all His work. First time it's mentioned. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, He rested from all the work of creating that He had done. You know... Man thinks he 's so great. We make you know a little invention or something, and we man, we think we 're the greatest thing that ever came down the pike and God is looking like you know, who do you all think you are? I made the heavens and the earth we we looked at those slides recently about the galaxies and the stars and It's mind-boggling. We can't even understand one little trillionth of all God made. And we get proud because we invented a computer or we designed a new car or something. Big deal. The emphasis in the Bible is not on man's works. The emphasis in the Bible is on God's works. And if you want a firm foundation in your Christian life, train yourself... To look at God's works and give glory to God for His works. That's why I love to study science. I love to study birds and trees and rocks and chemicals. And anything God made, it excites me. Because He did it. And if He did it, it shows me His wisdom. It shows me His power. It shows me such an, an amazing designer. I can't even begin to fathom The wisdom that God possesses. And all throughout the Bible you read about different ones that are praising God for His works. You see, religion gets us off of that foundation onto looking at our works. And trust me, I've had some experience in religious settings, legalistic settings, where the more religious you get, the more bound and the more proud and the more self-centered you become. And it's really the antithesis to the good news of the gospel, which is to free us and to justify us just by trusting in God. And of course, the greatest work of all is not those six days of creation. The greatest work of all is when Jesus said, It is finished. He finished His Father's work. The work of redemption. The work of salvation. The work of of delivering you and me from the power of sin and Satan. It is finished. He finished the work. And I have come to a place in my life, and I don't mean to sound mean or Cynical, but I'm really not too impressed with man's works anymore. I'm not even impressed with big churches, big ministries, big TV, magazine, radio ministries. Praise God for all those things, but it really doesn't impress me. I'm impressed with God's works. And when I hear about something that God does, that excites me. Shireen was telling a testimony that they heard in a meeting yesterday of a woman who was so crippled with rheumatoid arthritis her body was knotted up in a ball and this man of god prayed for her once and nothing happened (laughs) and the lord reminded him of how jesus prayed twice for the blind man so he prayed a second time and i don't know if i'm getting the story exactly right but all of a sudden he literally started to hear bones cracking and all the bones opened up and the woman took off running in the field he had to run and chase her down right that is god's work that deserves praise and glory when you hear about those kinds of things that god does so the emphasis in the bible from the very beginning when we're talking about work is his work his work of creation and his work of redemption okay fourthly in genesis chapter 3 And we looked at this a bit in a study that we did on the foundations in Genesis, but it's worthy of our looking at again. Genesis chapter 3. By this time, Adam and Eve have disobeyed. Satan has tempted them and led them away from the goodness of God. And now God is pronouncing curses on Satan, on the woman, on the man, and even on the ground because of sin. Make no mistake, sin brings a curse. Sin brings a curse and it brings death. And so here, right as this pronouncement is being made of curses on the serpent, on the woman, and on the man, we pick it up in verse 14, Genesis 3 and verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, "'Because you have done this, cursed are you, above all the livestock and all the wild animals.'" You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Stay there, verse 15. Most. Bible teachers, scholars, theologians, they recognize this is the very first time in scripture where there is a prophecy, a prediction concerning Christ, the Messiah. You have to think about that. In man's worst hour, he has failed God. He has disobeyed the com- the commandment of God. In that same hour, God is already giving him hope. He's already telling him, I'm going to bring you out of this one day. I'm going to make a way out of the mess you've just made. I don't know if that encourages anybody else in here, but that encourages me. Because I've made some messes in my life. And this God that I know, He's a God who can make a way out of your mess when you trust Him. And God is saying, this serpent that you've just listened to, who caused you to disobey and to fall from my grace, I'm going to put enmity, there's going to be a continual war between that serpent and the woman, and follow this, and between your offspring and hers. DJ, can you switch that to King James for just a moment? I think this brings it out a little bit better from the original Hebrew language. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. The seed will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. The seed of the woman is referring to Jesus Christ. And this is a strange expression, seed of a woman. It's not found anywhere else in the Bible. The Bible always talks about the seed of a man, not the seed of a woman. But this is special because it's pointing to the fact that the Savior, the Messiah, Jesus, would be born of a woman. It, it shows right from the very beginning that the Savior was going to be human. Born of a woman, the seed of woman. And this is also a clear reference to the cross of Calvary. You will bruise his heel, but he will bruise your head. We're told in the book of Hebrews that through his death, Jesus destroyed him who had the power of death, the devil. And let me tell you something, Jesus got whipped real bad. And even down to his heels being nailed to the tree. He was beaten, he suffered death, but in doing so, he crushed The serpent's head. It's a clear reference to Calvary and coming redemption through Jesus Christ, born of a woman. Now, let's move along quickly. I think this is number five now. This is a biggie. Love. Do you remember where it first is mentioned in the Bible? I'll give you a hint it's not the love between Adam and Eve, it's not the love of a man for a woman. It's found in Genesis 22, and it brings us right back to the father of our faith again, Abraham. Genesis 22, and we'll read verses 1 and 2. And as always, I would challenge those here, and even those who might listen to the recording of this later on, check out these verses. Don't just take my word for it. Get your Bible out, look up these scriptures, and verify... The the points that are being made, but you can trust me, this is the first time love is mentioned in the Bible. And again, the first mention of a concept is very significant. It wasn't mentioned in the Garden of Eden. God waited to mention love here in the story of Abraham and Isaac. And I believe there's a very powerful reason for that. Genesis 22, verses 1 and 2. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. That's, that's another first mention, the concept of testing. We're not even going to look at that today, but lots of things that are uh, appearing here for the first time. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to Abraham, Here I am, he replied. Then God said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Wow. The first mention of love is by no accident the love of a father for his son. Very specific. The love of a father for his son. And if you follow the rest of the story, it was a sacrificial love. As much as Abraham loved his only son, Isaac. He was ready and willing to sacrifice him to God. It's a sacrificial love of a father for his son. And if you can put up very quickly, John 17, 24. There is a love that has existed from before time. Before creation, before Adam and Eve... Before the book of Genesis, there is an everlasting love. And before time and before creation, this was the first and only love. Jesus says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. I spent quite a bit of time over the weekend pondering this. Do you have any idea how much the father loves his son Jesus? (laughs) We're talking about an eternal love relationship between a father and a son. And what Abraham was willing to do with Isaac, God stopped him at the last minute. The father had no one to stop him, and he sacrificed his one and only Beloved Son. And by the way, while we're on this subject of first, first mention, I decided to look at the four Gospels and look at the first time in each one of the four Gospels where love is mentioned. Are you with me? Matthew 3, verse 17. First time love is mentioned in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew three seventeen. And a voice from heaven said... This is my Son, whom I love. With Him I am well pleased. Mark chapter 1, verse 11. And a voice came from heaven. You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Luke chapter 3, verse 22. And the Holy Spirit descended on Him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my Son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. It it seems that above all else, there was this all-consuming love that the Father had for the Son and the Son had for the Father. And all that was put to the test on the cross of Calvary. And can you guess the first place in the Gospel of John where love is mentioned? John 3.16 God so loved the world That he gave his one and only son. Remember, Abraham's love was for his one and only son. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Wow. No greater love. No greater love, the Bible says. All right, we have two more. In Genesis 11, We read the story of the Tower of Babel, or Babel. I kind of like Babel better, because that's what they ended up doing, babbling. And there are actually two concepts that are tied together here, so I'm going to use both of them. Unity and language. Unity and language. It's the first time mentioned in the Bible where the people were united. And it's the first time the Bible says anything about language. Now, we know they talked. Before that, but this is the first time that concept is introduced and it's very important in this chapter. And the unity of the people and their language tie right into the whole story. Genesis 11, let's read from 1 down to verse 8. The whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. I want to go slowly here. Listen to these words very carefully. Then they said, come let us build ourselves... doesn't say they're doing this for the Lord. Come let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we may glorify the name of the Lord, so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Now, keep it right there. I have shared with some of you a vision I had about three years ago when I was down in Honduras, and I can't shake it. And in this vision, I saw this tower. And I saw it collapsing, literally just crumbling into rubble. And then the Lord spoke to me very clearly. He said, this is what most ministry on the earth is trying to do. Make a name for themselves, build something for themselves. And God told me personally, I'm going to bring it all down. I'm going to bring it all down in these last days. Any ministry, you can call it a tower, a city, whatever. These grand projects of man. If the motivation is, let's build it for ourselves, let's make a name for ourselves, we're going to see the same end result. Keep going. The Lord, I love this. Remember, they're building up toward heaven. They think, look at what we've made, man. And God says, what is that down there? What is that puny thing they think they're making? The Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, remember the language? Here's where the language comes in. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Pause for a minute. Can you imagine what can happen when we are united, we're all speaking the same language, and yet we're not doing this for ourselves, we're doing it to glorify the name of the Lord. If we are united, God says, nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. There is power in unity. And there's tremendous power even when you're united in the wrong cause. Imagine when we're united for the right reason. Next verse. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. It's the first mention of a lot of these things in the Bible. Unity, one language, and this whole idea of building something to reach heaven. But you know, when we come over to the New Testament, it's very interesting. You find some of the same Thoughts and words and concepts in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, chapter 2. And you remember on the day of Pentecost, the Bible says they were all in one accord. They were all in one accord, and then what happened? They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and something happened to their language. What happened to their language? They began to speak in other tongues, as the Holy Spirit... Gave them utterance. And the Holy Spirit began to move them, and finally, He scattered them out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, and finally to the uttermost ends. Of the earth, not building a tower for themselves, not trying to make a name for themselves, but building the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And my friends, that is God's call for you and me today—not to build something for our name, not to build something for ourselves, but to get ourselves out of the way and allow God to use us to build His great city, to be build a tower that will indeed reach heaven. It's called the New. Jerusalem. It's called the house of God. It's called the Church of the Living God. And it's a good work. This was an evil work. It was self-centered. It was proud. It was arrogant. And God brought it all down in confusion. And it, it breaks my heart, but I'm seeing this happen all over the world. These great towers that man has built, using the Lord's name, but everybody knows they're really making a name for themselves. God. Is bringing them down and you and I better check our hearts and make sure we're not in this for ourselves we're not in this to make a name for ourselves but we want to glorify the name of Jesus Christ who gave his life on the cross of Calvary for us and finally seventh point go all the way back to Genesis 2 the first wedding first wedding in the Garden of Eden man I've been to some pretty amazing weddings over the years, you know. They have them in beautiful gardens and by the seashore. I saw one the other day where the bride and groom were standing on this beautiful beach and the sun was setting. Oh, just this awesome view. And all of a sudden, this great big sea turtle crawls up on the beach, ruins the whole wedding, ruins the picture. Praise God for turtles. (laughs) But man, this was the wedding to top all weddings, in the Garden of Eden, in paradise. And in Genesis 2, starting with verse 21, you all know the story, but it's good to read it. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man And he brought her, whoa, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Now, you know. The Apostle Paul quotes this very passage in Ephesians chapter 5. And he's giving some counsel and some instructions to the husbands and to the wives how to function in their marriages, but he's going way, way, way beyond that, as we will see. Go to Ephesians chapter 5, and we'll start from verse 22. And I want you to notice Paul quotes this same verse that we just read concerning the marriage between Adam and Eve. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Notice how he's tying in the relationship between a husband and the wife and Christ and the church. Okay? Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless." In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. Recognize this next part? Genesis 2, verse 31. He's actually quoting from where we were in Genesis 2. For this reason... A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Now hold it right there for a minute. So far, it sounds like he's giving some good instruction for marriage and for the husbands and for the wives and and how to function within this marriage. And that could have been the reason why he was quoting this verse, except for the next verse. This is a profound mystery. Now... I don't want to get myself in trouble here. I just completed a quarter century. But marriage is a mystery. And you all better keep quiet. If your marriage, married, just keep quiet. But it's a mystery. That's not what he's talking about. This is a profound mystery. But I am talking about Christ and the church. That wedding in the Garden of Eden, it didn't just happen then for no reason. That was the first mention of marriage because God was beginning to paint a huge picture that it would take him the entire Bible to complete of what he really desires to happen between Christ and his church. And that is the same kind of a relationship between a husband and a wife is the relationship that Jesus wants to have with you and with me. And we find in Revelation chapter 19, and here I will conclude, there is a wedding of all weddings that is about to take place. And you don't want to miss this one. You may miss any other wedding, but don't miss this one. Revelation 19, beginning at verse 6. I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb? Jesus is getting married? That's right. The Lamb refers to Jesus. The wedding of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Who's Jesus getting married to? Who's the bride? It's the church. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Remember, righteousness that comes by faith, that has now become her wedding dress. Righteousness. Then the angel said to me, Write... Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. And that, my friends, is the gospel. It's salvation by grace, through faith, not by works of our own, but by God's mighty works of creation and redemption. He now has brought us to a place where through the blood of Jesus Christ our sins are washed away. Righteousness has been credited to our account and He's filled us with the power of the Holy Spirit and empowering us now to be scattered to the ends of the earth proclaiming the good news of the Kingdom of God. Soon and very soon this wedding will take place. Will you be ready? Will I be ready? It says the bride has made herself ready. There is some work that you and I need to do. It's to get ready. It's to prepare for that wedding day. To make sure we're clothed, not with our own righteousness, but with the righteousness that comes from God through faith. To make sure that we're not standing in our own pride and arrogance and and look how great i am god but we're standing in grace humbly before a mighty god i can't even begin to understand or explain to you why jesus wants to marry us i can't understand that but i do know this it's true these are the true words of god and as we read earlier Jesus' prayer to the Father is, Father, I want them to be with me where I am, with you forever and ever and ever. Let's stand. Father God, we look around the world today, we hear nothing but bad news. But you have given us good news. You've given us marvelous good news that there is grace available for us to find, even in this time of darkness. And evil and corruption and desperation. We, like Noah, can find grace, find favor in your eyes. God, I pray for an outpouring and an impartation of new favor, of new grace into your church and into each one of our lives. God, we need grace. We need your favor. Fill us with new and fresh grace. Lord, you said where sin abounds, there does grace much more abound. We need a double portion of grace now in this evil, fallen, troubled world, O God. And Lord, this grace is only available through faith. God, I pray that you would give us believing hearts. Take away our doubts, our fears. Take away our unbelief. And give us hearts that will trust you. Believe in your word. Believe in your promise no matter what. Just as Abraham hoped against hope. And he kept believing in you, O God. And you declared him righteous because of that. Lord, we thank you for the great works of creation. And even the greater works of redemption. That because of the cross of Calvary, Jesus born of a woman, the seed of woman has now crushed the head of the serpent and defeated death, defeated sin, defeated bondage and darkness and brought us into the glorious liberty of the sons of God. Father, we pray that in these coming days we can walk and move in the power of your anointing, that your Holy Spirit would fill each one of us, empower us, to declare the good news of the gospel to the four corners of the earth. And Lord, fill us with hope. You are a God of hope. And even in this time of hopelessness, you've given us the greatest hope of all, that soon and very soon you're coming back for us. And Lord, there is going to be a wedding like no other wedding. Oh Lord, the marriage of the Lamb has come. And the bride has made herself ready. Father, we praise You. We exalt You. We glorify You. And now Lord, send us forth from this place empowered, encouraged, and filled to overflowing with Your goodness, Your grace, and Your power. Bless us. And make each one of us a blessing. In Jesus' name we pray. And the saints said, Amen Amen and Amen. God bless you. Have a spirit-filled week. And I'm real serious. Where sin abounds, there does grace much more abound. Let's look for that super abundant grace this week. Amen?